Welcome to The Weather Pod, a podcast about the growing importance of weather information to business and society. I'm Alan Thorpe. I'm a former Director General of the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, a former head of the UK Met Office's Hadley Centre, and a Professor of Meteorology. And I'm David Rogers. I'm a former Chief Executive of the UK Met Office and am now a consultant with the World Bank, helping countries improve their weather-related disaster management systems and services. Weather information is a critical international resource for saving lives, making business and society more efficient, and building resilience to extreme weather and climate change. In each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss how public, private and academic sectors work together to produce weather information and make it available to business and society. We also investigate how weather-affected public and private enterprises actually use it and the new business opportunities being created. And because extreme weather often impacts the poorest the hardest, we'll look beyond the rich countries to the less developed ones, which host most of the world's population. Well, now it's time for Wow, That's Interesting. Wow! So, David, what do you have for us this episode? I thought it might be interesting to discuss the health impacts of the strange yellow light and brown skies that we woke up to in Switzerland on the 6th of February. Of course, meteorologists will know that this is a relatively common phenomenon caused by the transport of dust from the Sahara that impacts Switzerland about three times a year. What I thought would be of interest is to look at the particulate matter that is PM2.5 and PM10 levels, that accompanied this event. Both PM2.5 and PM10 can contribute to respiratory problems. Yes, I understand that high concentrations of PM2.5 have been linked by some scientists to the virulence of COVID-19. So what sort of concentrations are we talking about here then? Yes, you're right about the COVID-19 link. Now, Meteor Swiss has an observation site on the Jungfraujoch, about three and a half kilometres above sea level, so this site is likely to measure the highest concentrations within the Sahara dust plume. Sure enough, in the afternoon of the 6th of February, PM2.5 concentrations, measured in micrograms per cubic metre, exceeded 100 with a maximum concentration of about 178 at 2pm. PM10 peaked at about 768. This contrasts sharply with normal readings at that altitude, which are typically less than one microgram per cubic metre for both PM10 and PM2.5. Were there any readings from lower altitudes? Yes, there were. Readings from two lower altitude sites, one in Payern and one in Lausanne, showed a steady increase in surface concentrations during the event from baseline concentrations of PM2.5 and PM10 of less than 5 to peak concentrations in lausanne cesar Roux of about 34 and 78, respectively. Payen followed the same trend, but with slightly lower concentrations. Wow, in both cases the normal levels are just tiny fractions of the actual amounts measured. So should we worry about this? Perhaps we should be, yes. Clean air standards indicate that yearly average concentrations of PM2.5 should be below 12 micrograms per cubic metre, and daily concentrations should not exceed 35. A recent study from an interdisciplinary team from the University of Geneva and the ETL Zurich spin-off Meteodat investigated the possible interactions between acutely elevated levels of fine particulate matter and the virulence of COVID-19. So tell us, David, what have they found? The results suggest that high concentrations of PM2.5 may modulate or even amplify the waves of COVID-19. The team has shown that increases in cases follow phases where the level of fine particles are higher. 
In the canton of Ticino, for example, high concentrations of fine particles increased sharply during a period of shallow fog on the Magadino Plain at the end of February 2020. This was followed by an explosive increase in hospital admissions due to COVID-19. However, they also note that this coincided with carnival and a large gathering of people, so this obviously contributed to the spread of the virus, but they believe that the air quality likely made people sicker. Exactly what is the link between fine particulates and the health, David? Fine particles inflame the respiratory, pulmonary and cardiovascular tracts and assist blood coagulation. This can exacerbate existing health conditions and in combination with a viral infection can lead to serious progression of disease. Studies of particles transported in desert dust are reported to contain sequences of several respiratory microbial allergens and pathogens and also that the number of cultivatable airborne microorganisms are two to three times that found in clear air. It's also been mooted that coronavirus, like influenza, can be transported by fine particles. A recent Italian study, for example, has found coronavirus RNA on fine particles. This suggests that despite measures to prevent human-to-human transmission, other pathways may exist. This is still highly debated, but it can't be ruled out. At the very least, it suggests we should pay close attention to the weather conditions that favour high concentrations of particulate matter and minimise exposure. Given the link between fine particulates and health, were any alerts actually issued? Well, although the Saharan dust was well forecast, to the best of my knowledge, no official warnings or alerts were issued. There are, of course, a number of air quality websites and apps that provide alerts which are very helpful for people in high-risk groups. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. The impact of COVID-19 on our lives and livelihoods shows clearly that protecting our health is a huge concern for all societies. This is especially so in the face of climate change that threatens to create environments that may exacerbate existing climate-sensitive diseases and introduce new ones. But just how prepared are we? In this episode of The Weather Pod, it's our pleasure to welcome Dr. Madeline Thompson into the studio to discuss these concerns. Madeline is the interim head of Our Planet, Our Health at the Wellcome Trust. She previously held senior research positions at the International Research Institute for Climate and Society and the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. She has also served as director of the IRI's Pan American Health Organization, WHO Collaborating Center, on early warning systems for malaria and other climate-sensitive diseases. Educated at the University of Sheffield, Imperial College London and the University of Liverpool, she originally trained as a field entomologist and spent much of her early career doing operational research to support large-scale health interventions, mainly in Africa. Madeline is the author of Climate Information for Public Health Action with climate scientist Simon Mason. Madeline, welcome to The Weather Pod. Yes, welcome, Madeline. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really, I'm really pleased to be here. Madeline, your career's taken you on a journey from fieldwork in the Gambia on mosquitoes to writing a book on climate information for public health. To start, can you tell us what motivated you to work on climate and health issues? Well, this, this goes back quite a while. And I started my career as a medical entomologist uh, involved in research to support the control of vector-borne diseases in West Africa. And I first spent a couple of years in Sierra Leone, just before the war, uh, working on a particularly nasty disease called river blindness. 
It's transmitted by a small black fly. These flies transmit a worm, which causes a disease that can result in blindness, hence the name river blindness, and also a very severe and debilitating skin disease. At the time, the disease was being controlled by a multi-country program, the Oncotogasis Control Program, in which the rivers uh, where these flies breed were being sprayed with insecticide to kill the larvae and stop transmission. And during my time in Sierra Leone, it was shown that these flies could travel hundreds of miles from the major river systems in West Africa, uh, in the Sahel, to the fast-flowing diamond rivers of Sierra Leone, bringing the blinding form of the disease with them. It was only after I left Sierra Leone and tried to better interpret the data that we'd been gathering that I realized I would need to understand the weather patterns that had helped carry these flies hundreds of miles. These patterns were the result of the inter-annual uh, movement of the intertropical convergence zone, which brings the monsoon rains uh, up and down uh, West Africa. So um, a similar situation occurred when I then worked in the Gambia as the chief entomologist for the Medical Research Council Laboratories in charge of entomological assessment of the national insecticide treated bed net program. This was a, a program being established to control malaria. It became clear to me that we had to factor in the climate if we wanted to understand the effectiveness of this control program in reducing malaria. If the climate was more conducive to transmission, then control efforts would have to work much harder to be effective. So you can see my interest in climate started from a very practical uh, set of research questions. Is the climate helping to increase transmission of this particular disease? If so, how? And furthermore, can we use that knowledge to improve our control efforts? So after a number of years working at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, where I sought to better understand some of these interactions, I was recruited by Columbia University in New York to lead a health program at one of their flagship mission-driven institutes. It's the International Institute for Climate and Society. It was there I got a chance to work with climate scientists who wanted to make a difference. And they were experts in the development of seasonal climate forecasts and satellite-based climate and environmental products designed to serve the needs of agriculture, water management and health in lower and middle income countries. And I spent 17 years there, kind of cheek by jowl with scientists from other disciplines in an intense research and research translation environment, building relationships at the same time with international and national partners interested in the use of climate information for health decision-making. So kind of a long journey, but really started out with a very practical need to improve health outcomes through climate knowledge. So what, what took you to the Wellcome Trust, Madeline? So I moved to the Wellcome Trust 18 months ago. And after, uh, uh, like I say, being in New York for um, uh, 17 years, I think it was just the time, you know, in everybody's career, there's a, there's a time to move and to do something new. And definitely one of the challenges that has been a, a really important issue in climate and health uh, research is the lack of funding in this space. And uh, I think moving to Wellcome, uh, provides an opportunity to try and uh, change that. Great. Um, I, I suppose it's hard at the moment to think beyond the, the COVID-19 pandemic, but what do you think are the major climate-sensitive health issues that we face and, and who is most at risk? Well, of course, I mean, you know, as, a, as an entomologist, there's a lot of uh, work that has been done and uh, knowledge around the interaction of climate and environment and vector-borne diseases. Uh, malaria, dengue, Zika, etc. There's also uh, quite a lot of knowledge now about other respiratory uh, diseases uh, such as flu and, that it's and we know that flu certainly in the northern hemisphere is highly seasonal and is related to our winter uh, climate and our 
behavior as well in the winter. Uh, there's quite a lot of effort happening at the moment actually on trying to understand COVID's relationship to climate. And uh, from our limited experience, uh, we only really have one year data. We've seen everywhere that there's a, a decline in transmission in the summer months, partly maybe because of climate uh, and also because of human behavior it allows us to be outdoors. So uh, we can see on all sorts of infectious diseases uh, that there is some climate component. The big question is, is knowledge about the climate in that context and potentially in COVID actually useful to improving our interventions? And then, of course, there's many other uh, roles of climate in um, uh, health outcomes. Think of heat stress and the increasing heat waves that we're experiencing from uh, climate change. Uh, we might think of the impact of climate and climate change in particular on uh, the nutritional status of crops and how this might affect health in the future. And more recently, and I think particularly in relation to COVID and climate, is thinking about the impact on our mental health. And uh, there's a, a, a sort of increasing interest in not only does climate directly impact our mental health, but does concern about climate change uh, also uh, impact on mental health and is a response to climate change actually being active a way that we can improve both mental health and improve the climate at the same time. So there are many, many ways that climate interse intersects with health. You've, you've mentioned both climate and climate change and I'm sort of interested in the extent to which um, the health issues are are really uh, the main one, ones of interest are are just associated with with the climate, the stable climate, if you like, as opposed to those that are really uh, being impacted by climate change, the extent to which the change is that important? Well, that's a very good question. And if you think back, when the Millennium Development Goals were elaborated in, in uh, the year 2000, and uh, we had three major uh, uh, diseases that were focus of the, of the health challenge, malaria, HIV and TB, virtually nowhere in the entire document development, if you like, of the Millennium Development Goals, uh, was climate mentioned. I think there was some mention of it in the uh, reports of the Hunger Task Force and Columbia was very much involved in writing uh, these documents and when I was working at IRI we reviewed all the documents to say does climate even appear and really it didn't appear. So there was no focus even then 20 years ago in the development community really thinking about climate and in the health community it's been very slow uh, to emerge and part of that, I think, has been the result of the fact that in the late 1990s, there was a huge drive to build resources to really tackle these major health problems, malaria, HIV and TB, as I mentioned. And partly because of the political challenges in the US, where climate is seen as a political issue as opposed to a scientific or practical issue, the health community was very reluctant to engage in climate. And the first mention of climate actually by WHO was when uh, Margaret Chan, who was then the Director General, gave a talk at uh, NIH at Bethesda in, I think it was 2007, uh, maybe it was eight. But it's very recent if you think in terms of political development around climate change and what we uh, see today. Uh, so besides health consequences of uh, climate and climate change, perhaps one of the biggest challenges is getting the health and climate communities to, to work together would you share your experience in how you approach this challenge? Well, obviously being a health person and then going to the IRI, which was fundamentally a climate institute, that was initially a very personal challenge, how to work with my new colleagues, how to learn about what they were doing and how to help them understand the perspectives of the health community. And I think the first thing that um, was obviously really essential was to 
start getting the health community and the climate community to work together on common problems. Uh, what we saw uh, was that um, while there was a strong motivation from the climate community to work with the health community, there really wasn't enough understanding to know what may or may not be useful in that interaction. And then from the health community side, there just wasn't the experience, or in particular, there wasn't the focus, because I mentioned what I mentioned earlier on, on understanding climate well enough to uh, show that it actually had value in terms of delivering programs. So one of the first things that I did uh, engaging at IRI, apart from to engage with colleagues, we started to think about how to build that internal capacity. Uh, we developed a summer institute focused on uh, bringing uh, a small group of public health uh, practitioners and decision makers together with climate experts and statisticians and others, so very multidisciplinary bring them together for a two week training course and get them to work with each other, always putting the health challenge up front and then saying, can we do something together to solve this particular problem? And I think having a very much a problem focus was a really important part of it because it helped bring communities together. And we've had a similar experience building that program out internationally, training internationally. And I have to say, David, I, I, have, to, I have to mention, because you've been such a, a, a key person in this whole endeavour, the creation of the Health and Climate Foundation, which was uh, your initiative and which I was delighted to support, which was another vehicle for bringing different communities together, particularly at the time, the World Health Organization and the World Meteorological Organization, and national partners to focus on a specific problem. And I think this problem focus, getting people around the table and building trust has been the essential work, if you like, to building activities across these communities. That's very interesting, Madeline. I'd, I'd like to build on that by uh, just a, a, a sort of perception from my side that over time, it seemed to me that there's been a closer relationship developing between researchers from the weather and climate and health communities. But I wonder if perhaps that isn't necessarily matched regarding the link between the operational weather and climate community and health professionals working on operational programs. I wonder if you would agree with that and, and what your perspective on that might be. I think that that's a really significant issue. First of all, I think there are different aspects, if you like, on, on who can work with who. So climate scientists who very often are very mathematical and modelers and really uh, very data focused, it's quite easy for them, I would say, to work with uh, modelers from the health community because effectively they talk the same language. And they're just, you know, sort of looking at different models, but but they understand each other fairly well. It's very different to have a climate scientist talk to somebody who's looking at health systems or health policy or delivery of programs, et cetera. So, and then of course, there's a research community that has, has that breadth of experience and knowledge. Another gap, if you like, has been that climate science has been a very northern, developed in the north by and large over the, you know, over many decades. And when you look at operationalizing the system, you very often have to engage with national MET services in many countries who have often very little exposure to climate. They're used to working on meteorological uh, issues, short-term weather forecasting, etc. So even if you went to the national level and wanted to work with the operational community, they didn't necessarily have the experience on climate that you would need to advance 
a climate related initiative. And just for in this context, I'm thinking particularly, say, around seasonal forecasting as opposed to weather forecasting. Again, at the national level, you then had realized that there was a big gap between the operational community on the health side and the operational community on the Met side. So a whole range of different types of gaps, if you like, uh, that appear. And uh, at the end of the day, you need health researchers that can work with climate researchers that can both translate their experience and knowledge to operational uh, communities on both the um, climate and the health side and get that feedback going up and down. And then of course you need to make those cross linkages at the national level, otherwise you, you can't set up a national system. So lots of gaps to be filled, fundamentally. So I, I wonder what, what kind of um, links could we establish? What, what mechanisms could we have to bring the operational communities closer together? How, how could that be done? Well, uh, our first experience of that was um, in Ethiopia in 2008, where we um, started working with a national climate and health working group. And it was chaired by a local NGO and it had the head of the Met, the Met services and the health services as co-chairs. And they initiated a whole range of activities between the Met community and the health community. A lot of it was around knowledge exchange to start with. Then it was around product development and uh, skill development, etc. So that model was cascaded, if you like, to quite a number of countries. It started off in quite an informal way. Subsequently, countries have, have actually built those mechanisms at a much more formal level to allow clear communication between the health and the MET sector. So um, really getting people to know each other, learn about what each other you know, the, the roles and responsibilities of the different communities, bringing in other communities, because it's not just a climate and health thing. You still need to have uh, communication, you need data systems, you need infrastructure, you need a whole range of capabilities, if you like, to be able to work across systems. But we've seen that now become increasingly present in countries actually around the world. So I think there's been a big shift there. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe, and David Rogers. So if I can pick up on, on the data issue you, you mentioned. So in, um, in practice, everything is based on evidence. So evidence-based decision-making, which depends on verifiable, validated results. In the case of climate-sensitive diseases and interventions, access to meteorological data is important, as well as to the health data. What data are needed from the meteorological community and what are the obstacles to accessing this information? So for me, the first really big hurdle was a mismatch, a sort of conceptual mismatch in that um, historically the modus operandum for European and African Met services has been to provide climate and weather forecasts free of charge to a user community, but to limit access to the underlying observations that are needed to make those forecasts. And from a health perspective, without ready access to a well-organized, structured ob observational data set and related products that are really at the right spatial and temporal resolution that could be of use to the health sector, it's really difficult for the health community to, to make good use of climate forecasts. So first of all, it's necessary to assess, that information is necessary to assess the relationship between their health come and specific climate variables. And there's been a huge challenge if you like on data policy um, and data access from the observations which basically pushed the health community into using satellite data 
as opposed to ground observations. And that in itself is okay. You can do some, some for some things. That's that's really useful and very helpful. But we know that the observations are really valuable in terms of improving the quality of the data. And many of the observations are available at the national level and not available in global products. So if you go to a country like Ethiopia, they provide, I don't know, 27 uh, stations uh, daily to the global community but they have maybe a hundred stations or more uh, that they're accessing. I think actually many more on a daily basis and even more on a monthly uh, basis, et cetera. So there's a lot of data at the national level that is not integrated into global products that is effectively not or was not accessible. And that's one of the things that I've worked on for many years now with colleagues uh, from the Met uh, community to make the data just much better quality at the national level using all of their own data and then bringing in the international uh, climate products that were available from satellite or model outputs and what have you. So that I think that the misconception that forecasts alone are useful was the first thing. And the second thing was the idea that you could do a, um, a pilot by just using one individual station or place and try and create um, an analysis which then could be translated across the whole of the country. And as we know, climate varies enormously across countries. Uh, the health data varies enormously. You can't just do a study in one location and expect a model developed there to be relevant across diverse environment. So really thinking about national data, high resolution across, across the board, if you like, and integrating that and creating models that decision makers can use has something that now I think people really recognize. But those two things were really big, challenging discussions back in the day. That's really interesting, Madeleine. Many of these data issues have been with us for a, for a long time. Of course, in the meteorological community, we, we also feel there are big gaps in, in our observational data, particularly in, in some African um, countries, many African countries, and other parts of the developing world. I wonder if we've made much progress since the publication of the IRI gap analysis on climate data in Africa and the subsequent report uh, on climate information for development needs, which I think was published by the WMO in 2006. Has there been much progress since then? I, I think there has actually. And I think particularly, I no longer feel like I'm bashing my head against a brick wall. I think that there's real interest and strong impetus in the climate community with now the active encouragement of the World Meteorological Organization to open up data and data sharing policies. And you can see this with Copernicus as a major project from the EU that is delivering huge quantities of climate data freely and openly available to the scientific and user community. And there's currently a, a, you know, a big discussion about significantly expanding the list of essential climate variables. I mean, I'm assuming your, your audience actually understand what some of these terms mean, but uh, uh, this is the type of information the MET community makes globally available. But there are also challenges that, uh, you know, well, this impetus, if you like, to do things differently, which in many ways is driven by our urgent realisation that we have to not only mitigate the climate 
in a very short time frame and therefore make the best available use of available science and information for that. But we also have to build resilience and adapt to a varying climate in a way that, you know, sort of a realisation that we really have not had at this level before. So this impetus to open things up, make the data available is really strong, but we do need to think of financing mechanisms to support MET services uh, to be party to this. But I think what's also really interesting is that it provides us an opportunity to say, well, what is the climate data and information uh, that we really need? And if you think about the way that the um, disaster community have uh, focused on the development of impact-based forecasting, uh, where you look at forecasting the outcome as opposed to just the hazard. We could also think now about building uh, climate variables that use health impact metrics to decide uh, what is going to be essential and available to the global community. And we could then measure the impact of the shared data on health outcomes and thereby drive up demand, which is an essential part, if you like, of ensuring that the investments go into uh, the climate community and the observations, etc. So I think that this is a really good time to start thinking and being much more ambitious, if you like, about what we could achieve with climate data to improve health outcomes. And it builds a bit on the approach adopted in the, in the United States, where weather observations are seen much more of a public good than uh, something that needs to be held uh, by the Met Services, and that the business model used by NOAA was very much about maximizing the uptake and use of uh, observational data for research and operations, and then generate the development and business opportunities around uh, around this. So I think there really is momentum now um, towards action on the climate crisis, and this time uh, a real opportunity to ramp up ambition on the use and development of climate data. But um, Madeline, uh, meteorologists tend to be a bit grumpy about observational data. They never they never can have enough, and they they think that they're constantly looking to to improve the the observations of the of the weather and climate. I wonder if the same is true for health data. It, is the health data situation um, sufficient to enable these kind of interactive studies to take place? Very good question. And I think with COVID now, the general public is so much more informed about the importance of health data in terms of decision making. We need to know who's infected. We need to know who's vaccinated. We need to know uh, if there's been any side effects. We need, to, you know, we all need to know. And this is all around how data is collected routinely, not for research purposes necessarily, but routine data collection that can inform a whole range of really, really important decisions. So of course the health community uh, looks to the climate community and they say, you have tons of data. We have loads of data that is missing and lots of questions that are not being asked. But I think the, the real thing is to focus now is on how do we use data? Who uses the data? What decisions can we actually make? and then build the data systems, if you like, to serve that type of decision-making. Because we also see that there's lots of data around that is not being used, both in the climate community and in the health community. So I think it's a, it's a really opportune time at the, on the health side as well to show the value of data collection and the quality of data um, and being able to integrate health data and climate data and other uh, forms of data to really improve our decision making. 
So on the on the decision making end, I mean, it seems we have you know, we have data, we have a lot of information now, but we still seem to make very relatively poor decisions. Uh, COVID uh, nineteen being an example in many countries where the the policies that have been employed have not been particularly effective, and it seems to be highlighting an issue which will be an ongoing one when it comes to dealing with uh, the impacts of climate climate change. Um, what do we need to do to really address this? And I wanted to put this sort of in the context of the whole issue. COVID has identified, has really shown us that poverty is a huge problem. And and one of the the issues is that what we're seeing is that whether it's COVID, whether it's any other um, disease, fundamentally this is a problem of poverty that we need to address. And how are we going to use all of the skill that we have to produce some much more effective policy making that addresses some of these fundamental issues? That is a big question. I mean, I, I think if we look at the Global Health Security Index, was there was an assessment, I think it was at the end of 2018, and it looked at the countries which they thought would be most effective at responding to uh, pandemics. And the US and the UK came out top. When you look at the quality of the science, the capability, et cetera, and we see that governance is obviously a huge part of uh, effective response. And uh, I think that's true. And it's going to be true on the climate side of things as well. I think where we're challenged on climate and health is that uh, unlike agriculture and water, where effectively, you know, agriculturalist farmers, you, you know, they have their own met stations. They're always looking at what's happening on the on the climate and weather side because it's directly uh, relevant to their, their business and, uh, and their work, etc. But health community really lags behind in the use of climate information. Uh, and so we don't see people trained or commonly trained in understanding both climate and health in order to, to have that joined up approach. And, and that's really why um, you mentioned the book that Simon Mason and I wrote on climate information for public health action. What's, um, and it was a very interesting uh, book to write, but what was a bit shocking is how little material is available for the health community to understand how climate works and, and how they could use that knowledge and information to improve health outcomes. And likewise, there's very little information for the um, climate community to understand how they should engage their health colleagues to deliver uh, improved health outcomes. And so there's a big gap there that we need to fill and we need to fill it fairly quickly to enable us to have an agenda that um, serves, like you say, a, a really significant global development agenda. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Madeline, looking forward, perhaps the um, we know the Wellcome Trust has a has a large investment portfolio, something like tw- nearly twenty seven billion pounds, and aims to spend about five billion pounds over the next five years, exploring great ideas. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your plans at the Wellcome Trust to address health and climate issues? In October last year, the Wellcome Trust announced its new strategy. And so for those of you not familiar with the Wellcome Trust, it's one of the largest uh, charitable foundations in the world. It's financially and politically independent, and it spends about a billion a year on achieving its mission. So it's a very significant funder of health uh, and medical research in the UK and globally. So they did a a review, a science review over 18 months, and uh, based on that review, have decided to initiate a completely new strategy to fund discovery science, which is one of its core areas and is focused on life 
health and well-being, but in addition, three challenge areas and where they would bring what is called the full weight of welcome, that's from discovery research to policy and public engagement, to have the biggest impact. And they've chosen three challenges. And these are infectious disease, where the Welcome Trust is very well known and has a lot of expertise and is very much involved in COVID uh, response, etc. Mental health, where the area has been identified as one where it's heavily under-researched and underfunded, and of course, of real significance to our discussion, the third challenge area is global heating and really focusing the attention on climate change and health. So Madeline, as, as an influential health research-oriented foundation, welcomes well-placed to ensure the best health research transitions into operations and supports policy development. To, to draw our, our discussion to a close, with the Conference of the Parties, COP26, around the corner, how can we get health mainstreamed into the process? Well, that's a really, really important question, because even if you go back to the Paris Agreement, health is highlighted, I think, in the first paragraph as, you know, uh, this is what climate change is going to impact on uh, most. It's our health and our well-being. And yet, throughout almost the entirety of the climate change uh, policy discourse, health has been largely missing. And so with COVID-19, which has, of course, imprinted the urgency of health on virtually everybody on the planet, and the uh, recovery budgets from COVID-19 focused now in many countries, particularly the UK, uh, Europe, the US and others on Build Back Better, we've got this really natural nexus between uh, climate change and health and provides a huge opportunity uh, to bring health into the um, climate Uh, policy discourse and effectively we'd like to see this as a a health cop. Uh, So Welcome is working with other stakeholders to get health mainstreamed into COP26 and the activities that we're involved in are fundamentally undertaking communication activities to raise awareness of the adverse impacts of global heating on health. Uh, We're funding the WHO Global Conference on Health and Climate Change, which will take part, part of the conference. And uh, we're supporting a new advocacy network on climate and health, which is bringing together civil society stakeholders from health, climate and related sectors to advocate for evidence-based solutions that can deliver for climate and health. So together with our partners, we are really strong supporters of the transition to a net zero economy, and aim to demonstrate how the rapid move to a sustainable society can be embraced as a health opportunity, where individuals not only breathe cleaner air, have more ready access to healthy and sustainable transport and food and energy, etc. And we recognise the significance of the investment gap in building resilience to increasing climate risks to health, especially in lower and middle income countries. Adaptation, resilience and mitigation should all be informed by our best understanding of the climate and robust climate information again is needed uh, to protect human health across the board. So anyhow, we're really pleased that the UK, Europe and the US and many others are increasingly embracing health uh, co-benefits of climate change mitigation as part of their carbon emissions commitments. And I think these uh, developments together with a Build Back Better provide a, a, a big opportunity to ensure that health is fully plugged in now to the global climate discourse. Well, Madeline, thanks very much for, for your insights on this uh, critically important topic. Yes, Madeline, this has been a really great conversation. Many thanks. It, it's been a real pleasure to share some thoughts with you and, of course, your audience. Thank you. Thank you.
You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Well, now it's time for Wow, That's Interesting. Wow! So, Alan, what do you have for us this episode? It's about a phenomenon called blue jet lightning and its possible value for more accurate thunderstorm forecasting. We're all familiar with the lightning flashes that characterise thunderstorms, but there's also a whole menagerie of other electrical phenomena which accompany these storms and stretch far into the upper atmosphere at altitudes up to 100 kilometres. They include electron-positron beams, blue jets, reddish sprites and elves. Alan, they sound like characters from a fairy tale, so exactly what are they? Well, blue jets are lightning-like atmospheric electric discharges of several hundred milliseconds duration that fan into cones as they propagate from the top of cumulonimbus clouds and into the stratosphere. In a recent edition of Nature magazine, Torsten Neubert and his colleagues at the National Space Institute at the Technical University of Denmark report spectral measurements of blue jets made from the ISS, the International Space Station. The ISS Atmosphere Space Interactions Monitor, or ASIM, observatory for short, includes instruments such as photometers, which measure light intensity, optical cameras and an X-ray and gamma-ray detector. ASIM was installed on the ISS in 2018 to detect electrical discharges during thunderstorms and it provides a view of cumulonimbus clouds with 10 microsecond temporal resolution. So what did Torsten Neubert and his colleagues have to say? They describe observations of five intense blue flashes from a thunderstorm cell with each flash lasting approximately 10 microseconds. One flash initiated a pulsating blue jet up to the stratopause, which is the interface between the stratosphere and the ionosphere at a height of about 50 kilometres. The observed flashes were accompanied by elves in the ionosphere. Elves are optical and ultraviolet emissions from the bottom of the ionosphere, and they often last for around one millisecond as a dim, flattened glow expanding to around 400 kilometres in diameter. Elves occur in the ionosphere at a height of about 100 kilometres above thunderstorms. Do we know how these blue jets, elves and other phenomena come about? Blue jets are thought to begin with an electrical breakdown between the positively charged upper region of a cloud and the layer of negative charge at the cloud boundary and in the air above. This breakdown forms a leader that transitions into streamers which then propagate upwards. The flashes and the blue jets are waves of ionisation. Blue millisecond flashes in cloud tops are known to initiate lightning within the cloud and to the ground, and also blue lightning into the stratosphere, as discussed in this new research. So what's the significance of these blue jets and elves for understanding thunderstorms? Can they help to provide better warning of lightning strike? Capturing these phenomena using ASIM's highly sensitive tools is vital for scientists researching weather systems on Earth. The observations hold clues to how lightning is initiated in clouds. And it's interesting that lightning influences the concentrations of greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere. About 1.2 billion lightning flashes occur around the world every year. Each of these flashes produces some nitrogen oxide that reacts with sunlight and other gases in the atmosphere to produce ozone. Near Earth's surface, ozone can harm human and plant health. Higher in the atmosphere, it's a potent greenhouse gas 
and in the stratosphere, it blocks cancer-causing ultraviolet radiation. Well, that concludes this episode of The Weather Pod. We hope you've enjoyed it. David and I will be back next month, and in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email to support at gweforum.org. Thank you.